It's Monday, February 5th, 2024 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I saw this news story and I said, oh no, this one's going to lead Gutfeld. Woke kindergarten. Yes, from the makers of Baby's First Struggle Session, this was an actual program actually implemented for the actual cost of a quarter of a million dollars in a California school district. Here's a description from the site. Woke Kindergarten aspires to be an abolitionist early childhood ecosystem and visionary creative portal that offers ways for kids to wonder, imagine, dream, create towards liberatory futures, thinking critically about their realities while drawing on their inherent gifts to hold space for what's possible. Here's Aki Gross, the founder of Woke Kindergarten and casher of the $250,000 check. She put this video out on Instagram. Yes, everyone, the rumors are true. I am anti-Israel. I am pro-Palestine. And I am 100% 10 toes down anti-Israel. I believe Israel has no right to exist. I believe the United States has no right to exist. I believe every settler colony who has committed genocide against native peoples, against indigenous people, has no right to exist. Woke kindergarten promoted woke wonderings, little thought experiments for the little ones. I'll read some. I wonder if we challenge the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, how might we transfer power back to the people? That was also sponsored by Woke George Wallace. There's the woke eradicating borders wondering. If we eradicate borders, how might we build our communities to include and support neighbors from all over the world? There's woke wonderings no more military, woke wonderings disrupting capitalism, woke wonderings police abolition. I think it's police. The O in police is asterisked out which was maybe a reason why their test scores plummeted. Can't write police. It's very offensive. And of course, woke wonderings. Yeah, you knew it. Palestinian liberation. I wonder if the United States defunded the Israeli military, how could this money be used to rebuild Palestine? I'll read another one. Woke wonderings, free housing for all. If we abolish landlords, how could we make sure everyone has safe and accessible housing? And guess what? After the money was spent on those aspects of the curriculum, the test scores fell. Shocking. It was kind of shocking because when you account for where the test scores were to start off with, the school district was 8% proficient in math before woke wonderings. They went down to 4 They also decreased 4% from a start of 12% proficient in reading. I will read from the San Francisco Chronicle. Report, district officials defended the program this week, saying that woke kindergarten did what it was hired to do. In other words, there are no landlords anymore. No, the Chronicle goes on. The district pointed to improvements in attendance and suspension rates and that the school was no longer on the state watch list, only to learn from the Chronicle that the school was not only still on the list, but also had dropped to a lower level. I wonder... What would happen if we reimagined the levels and lists? Santa's naughty list. The even worse 
state watch list. I actually thought this whole thing was a false flag operation funded by Ben Shapiro, a little too on the nose, but it does lead me to a topic that I've been contemplating for a while now, and we're actually going to give a week over to it. So the woke wonderings, let's put that aside, that almost seemed too ridiculous to be true. But the issue of DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, it has become tied up with social justice, tied up with the world of the woke, and it's gotten a really bad name. Many states have flat out abolished DEI curricula and implementation in government agencies. There are a lot of attacks on DEI from the right. Like I said, Florida, Texas banned it essentially. Uh, About 18 other states are considering or have taken efforts to ban some aspects of DEI. But even in places where Ron DeSantis' campaign was nothing but a punchline, DEI initiatives are hardly robust examples of effectiveness. Between 2019 and 2021, LinkedIn reported an over 169% increase in companies looking to fill the title chief diversity officer became very popular, but then a pullback. Now read from a headline in the Wall Street Journal, the rise and fall of the chief diversity officer. It included this graph. The number of chief diversity officer searches is down 75% in the past year. And they quote an executive search firm saying that demand is the lowest he has seen in 30 years of recruiting. The attrition rate for all DEI roles was down 33% at the end of 2022. Why? Well, let me quote another Wall Street Journal article. Why DEI training doesn't work and how to fix it. Here's part of that article. Advocates for DEI, which stand for diversity, equity, and inclusion, have bemoaned the fact that after decades of diversity training, many university faculty, state agencies, and corporations have made little progress on diversifying their workforce. The right and left are on the same page here, the article says. Is diversity training a hopeless cause? But I want to know what's really going on. I want to get beyond the caricatures. So what I did and what I am doing, and come with me if you will, this whole week, I wonder, what if we go with Mike? Will he be a fair broker for this question? I hope so. Because I sought out people who know what they're talking about in this field. An academic who has studied the literature, he's got his PhD, he's worked with the top researchers on DEI's actual ineffectiveness, and he'll be on today. We'll talk to a trainer who is a DEI expert, gets paid for it, consults with CEOs every day. We'll talk to a skeptic who is a black and Latino public intellectual, says our intense focus on race is more like racism than not. So our first interview, and this will be the entire rest of the show, though throughout the week we will have spiels, though all our interviews will be dedicated to DEI, our first interview is with Ahmad Brown, he is a DEIJ, that one's for justice, scholar and practitioner with a decade of experience. He teaches at Northwestern School of Education and Social Policy, and he is here to tell us what he tells the people he teaches and the people he trains about why DEI actually works.
DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Who could object to that? I mean, diversity, that's good. Inclusion, certainly nice. Okay, equity, that definition changes a lot over times, but at least a few of these should be things that we pursue. But DEI has taken on a little bit of a negative sheen. Now, I'm not going to credit some of the worst arguments how DEI causes parts of airplanes to fall off, but surveys show two things. One, that after a boom and in interest in DEI in corporate America in 2020 and soon thereafter, there's been a huge drop off in the number of companies that have committed to it. And in fact, in the number of DEI officers who are in the field, the surveys about burnout are staggering. And there are some other studies, pretty well done studies that show that as practiced, DEI doesn't work. And that cuts a couple of ways and has implications for people who strongly believe in DEI and are also big critics of DEI. Well, joining me now is Ahmad Brown, who is a professor at Northwestern University. He is, said this self-description, an organizational change scholar practitioner who provides educational experiences and consulting services to equip leaders committed to moving the needle on, let us say, things like DEI. Professor Brown, welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. A pleasure to be here. So first of all, let's just talk about the terms. If you had to redefine the space with le- different letters or different words, would you? Wh- what would you think would be better to serve the purposes of getting America less biased and more inclusive? Sure. I, I very much appreciate that question uh, because at, at the end of the day, there are tons of letters, acronyms, uh, all uh, in some ways defined slightly differently, sometimes significantly differently, uh, organization to organization, person to person. Uh, I would stick, though, with D, E, and I, and I'll break that down uh, relatively briefly here. So when we talk about the D, the diversity, we're talking about committing to a process in which we're welcoming of people, broadly speaking, with difference. I'll go to I, um, because I, you know, is, is slightly less contested, if you will, than, than the, the E of equity. Inclusion, uh, we can think about inclusion kind of in two ways. Uh, we think about inclusion almost in its literal kind of Webster's Dictionary definition of, you know, people included and processes uh, that uh, influence them, decisions that influence them in their day-to-day experiences. Um, You know, often we kind of bring transparency into that definition. And then, you know, the other version of inclusion I keep top of mind is uh, often what people think about as inclusion in DEI work. It's essentially, you know, do you have both a feeling of belonging and an ability to be your unique or authentic self, you know, that draws very specifically from a, a definition of inclusion in the academic, the, the scholarly literature. And then equity is the big one. Um, you know, equity is a big one that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, contested, uh, you know, definitions here, you know, in the practice space, but in certainly in the scholarly sense. Uh, but, you know, at the, at the, at the most basic level, uh, the extent to which people have what they need to succeed and potentially even thrive right, in informal and organizational contexts. These are broad definitions, right, intentionally so, because, uh, you know, I, I spent some time as a consultant, you know, always talk about being mutually exclusive, comprehensively exhaustive, right, you know, like, let's cover everything, cover all of our bases to capture the universe, if you will. You know, let's think about these as processes. In addition to outcomes, potentially, we'll get there. But, you know, let's, let's first talk about them as processes. 
I think this is true. Frank Dobbin of uh, Harvard has studied uh, DEI along with Alexandra Kalev, and you studied with them. Is this right? I studied with Frank, Professor Frank Dobbin. Frank Dobbin is my academic mentor, probably primary academic mentor. I'm of his academic tree, if you will. Fantastic. So he puts out and has been documenting this for a while, and I'll read the title of one of his latest uh, findings. Well, it's a question. Why doesn't diversity training work? And as he documents it, I think pretty thoroughly and to me convincingly, it doesn't. I mean, I don't have to tell you that we haven't seen an uptick in um, the hiring of management positions by race. Other examples of it not working are when applications are taken from black applicants to take one group against white applicants, how many more applications have to be filed to get an interview for a black applicant. And there have been a number of studies of this, and this hasn't really changed. And there's even some documentation by Dobbin and others that not only does it not help, it seems to, in maybe some cases, hurt. There is a backlash against this. So first, let's talk about that research. Do you think that that research is accurate? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, uh, Professor Dobbin and, and Kala, they, they, you know, they, their recent book, their 2022 book, I mean, they're, they're bringing together you know, 30 years of empirical research they've done, uh, citing, as you do in academic work, you know, other empirical work, other theoretical work, uh, to bring forth a really compelling argument. Uh, you know, the thing that I always talk about, you know, certainly with my students um, or when I'm in the practice space, uh, is to make sure that we contextualize these these findings, and uh, you know, in particular, you know, a lot of what they're talking about that does not work is diversity training, right? Mm-hmm. Which is common, not just in corporate America, large organizations. You know, diversity trainings to happen in your local nonprofit these days. They're, they're all over the place, right? But yeah. they're talking about something like a three and a half billion dollar industry, right? In right. Yeah. But we're talking, and they're talking about uh, in terms of what's not working, certain ways, and, and you might say prevailing, and by prevailing, I mean like what we often find in terms of how trainings are, are delivered. If that's the part that doesn't work, the training, a particular ways of doing training, right? And where I really push back, and this isn't their research because they also talk a lot about uh, in the research about what does work. Right. Yeah. But where, where, and they're committed to make right, it work. They're not right. among those say it doesn't work. Let's scrap it. They want to find a way. Exactly. To make it and they have plenty of empirical evidence, you know, that shows what does work. Right. And it goes beyond training. Right. So where I really push back, you know, in some of the, uh, you know, the DEI resistance, uh, the DEI doesn't work narrative is that particularly when they draw on this kind of research is, well, OK, you're synonymizing, not you, Mike, but, you know, we're often, you know, we see in the popular press, uh we're synonymizing training with the whole universe of DEI. And that universe is multifaceted, um, people operating, you know, if we use social science terms, you know, operating in different units of analysis, you know, so certainly at the individual level trainings, uh, but certainly, you know, when I engage this work in the practice, I'm operating at a broader, at a higher level, right? You know, I'm thinking about DEI as I loosely say, DEI is strategy, <laughs> right? You know, not the interpersonal, one-off, two-day training, right? That when delivered yeah. in certain ways does not work. couple questions. One, when we say diversity training, can we include anti-bias training in there or do you see differences in those? Okay. 
when the diversity training doesn't work, you mentioned a one-off. Yeah, I wouldn't I think a one-off sure. would change people's minds, but especially in um, colleges and some of these better funded institutions, it's not a one-off. It's a entire regime of trainings and follow-ups. And even that, even when there's a commitment to it, a monetary and a time commitment, it doesn't seem to work that well from what I've seen. Do, do you see a difference? I think there's a lot of a lot of variance, right? Like it, it's it's uh, you know, and at that level, you know, in, in terms of looking at full strategic programs for DEI, you know, I, there may be some empirical work out there. Um, I'm not sure if I've really seen it. You know that you know empirically assesses like okay, you know, like a broad DEI strategy is this working in be it a, a corporate entity? Is it working in a college setting? You know, it, I, I'm not sure I've seen that that work out there. So it, it's uh, you know, not to be strictly scholarly here, but like you know, I, I, I'm not I'm not going to make like an, a claim here. Like you know, these do or do not work broadly, right? What I will say is this though. Um, again, going back to what I, I I talk about is you know conceiving DEI as strategy, if you will. Um, you know, so frequently, and we see this often, of course, in in, in the corporate space. Uh, you know, we see situations where, you know, there's perhaps a, a goal, you know, and so like, even if we, before we even talk about something working or not working, we have to think about, well, okay, what does work mean here? You know, mm -hmm. like, is it, are we talking about representation? You know, generally, are we talking about representation over time and perhaps at the most senior levels of an organization? Are we talking about uh, feelings of belonging, which you can measure? Right. Yeah. Feelings of inclusion, like, you know, getting very clear, you know, about in academic speak, statistical speak, we'd say the dependent variable, you know, the, the outcome, what, what you're trying to do, one or more of these things. Uh, but fundamentally, you know, and, and again, this is, you know, part of, you know, where I push back. It's uh, relatively rarely, right, do we see really coherent well-integrated articulations of DEI strategy for one or more reasons, right? Not the least of which being, and, and, and you know, we see this again in over organizations of all types, uh, we're not resourcing, right? You know, and these, 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 these DEI functions, right? Uh, to, to, to get the job done, right? Irrespective of kind of how you define work, right? You're not resourcing them you know, for a strategy to take place, you know, to, to unfurl over time. So you put a lot of things on the table there. You said, what is work? Are there any definitions of work? Is there any carve out for Dobbin and the analysis that diversity training isn't working? You said the diversification or having a higher representation in upper management or feelings of occlusion on surveys. So however, Define it however you want. Is there one where the normal way that they do diversity or that we as a society do diversity training is working? Yeah. So Professor Dobbin and uh, Professor Kalev, they, they talk a lot about uh, diversity working in terms of that representation, right? Particularly representation yeah. at, at the senior or more managerial uh, levels of organizations. And their rationale for that, it, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense. You know, for them, what we talk about in terms of equity or inclusion, for them, those sort of roll up into diversity, right, in terms of representation, right? It, it, it makes sense. You know, it's a compelling argument, right? And uh, what they, they show that works there, you know, is the, you know, the bringing people from 
you know, the, who have managerial responsibilities, bringing them into your processes, right? Your, your for recruitment, um, task forces, for example, where there's broad uh, involvement, right, in, in your diversity initiatives. You know, that's, that's where you get some movement, Right. But but again, but again, uh, you know, I, I want to emphasize that at the end of the day, we need, um, I would argue, uh, to conceive of DEI efforts, broadly speaking, in which, you know, again, training, right, to get people up to speed, you know, in terms of, if not, you know, DEI issues in the abstract, like issues of race, gender, whatever the next thing might be, in terms of fundamentally, like, this is what our organization is doing. On DEI, this is what we care about. This is what work means to us, right? Uh, and and that's where I, I really try to push, you know, particularly in the, in the practice space. Okay, I can say Frank Dobbin, you know, can say that success for DEI is representation at the managerial or senior leadership level. Great. What do you, as a leader in your organizational context, see as working? Right. Mm-hmm. That's not so much for me or Frank or the next person to tell you, right? In the same way, in the same way that in any other function in your organization, if you're, say, a CEO, right? You're thinking very critically about what success looks like, right? Not just sort of, you know, taking, you know, by 2028, we're going to be this, right? So that's a lot of, a lot of what I, the work I try to do is to, to get folks to start thinking about DEI in a strategic sense, just like, again, any other function, that is important to their organization. So, okay, they can define it. What is one way, one plausible way that businesses have defined it where you have seen it working as they define it? Sure. Goes back to the commitment to to process, right? And and uh, you know, on a, on a very basic level, um, you know, I, I can offer this in kind of three stages, right? So you have uh, almost like in a maturity model sense. If we just take equity, for example, right, if we think about, okay, we want to go from having maybe not great equitable processes for hiring, Mm -hmm. for example, right, and we want to, you know, we're not going to put a number on it, we're just going to say we want to be more equitable in our hiring processes over time. Now, we think about hiring, right, I, I think about the entire employee life cycle, actually, doesn't just begin with the interview or the recruitment. It begins with, okay, well, I have a job posting. What am I putting in that job posting? How am I talking about my organization in that job posting? How am I, I talking about how we work together, right? Uh, you know, is the job description and, you know, getting towards, you know, increasingly, you know, uh, the increasing attention to uh, thinking about skills-based hiring versus credentials versus, you know, right. status, you know, like, how are we thinking about constructing the job description? How are we interviewing them? How are we de-biasing the interview and evaluation? So forth, so forth, all the way, all the way to promotion advancement, you know, plans for that, as well as your know, potential exit, right? So thinking about that entire pipeline at each one of those stages, how am I making for an equitable process where I'm trying to de-bias the process? Not so much, or not, pardon me, just, you know, the individual who's evaluating the resume or doing the interview. Yes, it's a part of it. How are we, again, de-biasing the system? So, well, you know, like, again, are we recruiting exclusively at Ivy League schools? You know, that's not inherently wrong. You know, I, that, that might be semi-controversial to say. But just if that's what you're going to do, just, you know, you need to be clear with yourself why you're doing that. I would say, right. you know, like, not great, but if you can tell me a, reason, a rational reason as to why you're doing that, eh, okay. 
What if they said Ivy League schools and Northwestern? A little better? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yes, we're still, still, we'll, we'll still have a conversation. Okay, uh, okay. But it's, it's simply to say, Mike, that the, the idea is to, A, get to a place where you're naming a process. Number yeah. one, that's like the first step of maturity. Like you're naming, you're naming there are initially equity issues and we're getting an equitable process initially in place. Stage two, and again, this is oversimplified, but stage two might be, okay, over time, this process becomes institutionalized, right? Like it becomes yeah. kind of taken for granted as this is the way we do things in hiring and then through the empl entire employee life cycle in our context. Stage three, and again, there's in between stages, I'm oversimplifying, you know, how, how I, I tend to think about this. But stage three is going beyond that institutionalization, right, to really getting managers, leaders to own core elements of this for themselves in their local context. And this is especially, especially important to the extent you're working certainly in a global context, a multinational context, even if you're just operating in the United States, you know, with different, different regional locales, like there are going to be different equity or DEI broadly issues depending on where you are. Right? right. And it's not like there's sometimes we make the mistake and, and Professor Dobbin and, and Kyle have talked about this. Right. We sometimes make the mistake of, you know, being in some ways overly bureaucratic. But it's it's you know, it's a it's a it's a both and right. You need the processes and you need the people who are implementing the processes, the policies, managing, leading on a day to day basis to have some sort of flexibility and facility to engage. Right. Uh, with nuance in the context in such a way that works for them. And we'll be back in just a minute or two to talk more with Ahmad Brown. We're back with Ahmad Brown, who holds a PhD in organizational behavior from Harvard Business School. He currently teaches at Northwestern School of Education and Social Policy. And we're talking about his experiences teaching and practicing diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. So I want to be tangible here, because as you're uh, describing things, I thought of tangible examples, and you tell me if this is exactly what you're talking mm -hmm. about. In hiring, it was very common, it probably still is, say we require a four-year college degree. But perhaps part of uh, the work of equity is to say, well, do you really need the college degree? What if the person has done the job for three years somewhere else and shows that they're excellent at the job? Maybe take out the requirement of the credential of the college degree. So that might be, um, so is that an example of, you know, not every example, but an example of something you're talking about? Very much an example. Very much an example. Okay, good. So I want to I wanna then ask you about that. So are you also saying that is a little bit, I have seen this as a little bit of a trend in places where I work that you say you need a college degree. Now you don't. I used to work at NPR. That's an example there. So you're saying that is an example where equity work or people who are experts at thinking about DEI, the equity part of it, have this idea. The idea has been absorbed by some businesses. It's helping everyone out. And therefore, when we say DEI doesn't work, we're just glossing over a very tangible example like that where it does work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And, and that's just that's just one example. And there's, hundred, right. and, and there's dozens and dozens of these. Now, my qu and another one that I was thinking of is not with a college degree. There's the 
ban the box trend, uh, which is for for lawmakers to not allow people to ask about uh, criminal charges or convictions. Mm. But many companies are doing this by themselves, mm-hmm. and this will create more equity, which is to say, essentially more fairness. Now, my question is, why is this? Has this? Does this need to be part of a broader DEI umbrella? That brings along with it, not just negative associations, but the diversity trainings that have been proved not to work. Why isn't this just good PR that's good for the bottom line of businesses? And you don't even have to frame it as the DEI, as a part of DEI. Yeah, that's. Uh, I really appreciate that question, Mike, because I'll offer my, my standpoint on this. Um, I conceive DEI very, very broadly. I conceive DEI uh, on a foundational level as, in some ways, internal strategy work. How do you get people who are inherently different, right, you know, to, to work together, bring them into your organizational context, and then have them work together, right? Now, here's, here's, here's the, to, to, the, to the goals of your organization. Here's the thing, the, the inconvenient, perhaps, to some truth. When we go that extra layer deeper, right, that difference isn't just in terms of, oh, I like watching sports on Saturday, you know, and you like, you know, playing chess, right? It's there are very real, very real dimensions, right, right, right. be they race, gender, you know, so forth, these social identity categories, which we empirically know this is actually not a controversial statement. It shouldn't be a controversial statement. It's a descriptive statement in which we know inequality has existed and continues to persist in society and organizational context, right? Like we, we know that, right? That that's not, shouldn't be a controversial statement. Now then the question becomes, right? From a leadership perspective, um, you know, how, how narrow, to your question, Mike, how narrowly, how broadly do you want to define your DEI efforts, right? And, and perhaps, you know, when I have my, my change management, you know, uh, hat on, you know, my, my change practitioner hat on, I might say like, okay, you know, maybe the most effective way to get to the, the end goal, right, is to call it something else, maybe, right? Uh, I, I, I not only hesitate to recommend that generally, mm. um, or specifically to any, a client, for example, uh, because then it doesn't do service justice, even just acknowledgement to the reality or of the reality of, um, you know, the, 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 the gross, frankly, you know, inequality that, you know, has existed, not just, you know, in, in, in a societal context, but then permeates in an organizational context. You can talk about this, you know, in terms of what we call material resources, like pay inequities, um, hiring um, in terms of, you know, who gets a call back for an interview. You know, there have been plenty of audit studies, you know, along racial lines, you know, for, 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 for that area. I mean, what we call non-material resources, like who's treated with respect, who's not, you know, cultural norms, like all, all these different dimensions. Um, so it, it's, uh, you know, maybe there's like a Trojan horse strategy, but, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I guess for me, um, and I, I, you know, I'm not going to speak for the next practitioner, but, you know, for me, I, um, I hold out a lot of hope that, uh, you know, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point we can actually have, you know, real honest conversations about, uh, you know, how, you know, particularly things like race, these dimensions of, you know, difference, right, how they, how they show up, impact our, our, our experiences in, in organizational context, and whether, frankly, we can even access them, right? 
Yeah. So I, right. I hear your answer as saying that it might be the case that there are different things we could call it and get the outcome that is DI. So maybe there's a strategy for that, but that all a might not be the case. And B, since what we're really doing is so blatantly and needs to be, and needs to acknowledge about you know, righting the wrongs of society or creating for a more inclusive, equitable society. Just say it. it it's important that we say it, uh, not to even make some broader point, but to actually get the actual um, change to happen. Absolutely. Is, is Absolutely. that right? Yeah. Okay. Now, here's another aspect, though, which is, as I'll define this for my audience, as I understand it, reading the Harvard, Harvard Business Review and other places, there is the business case for DEI and the values case, right? The business case is something like I just said, hey, guys, uh, guys running companies, and yes, mostly guys, this is going to be good for business. I've heard this all my life. Like if you're more inclusive, you'll, if you're excluding great candidates, that's hurting your business. We want to get to the place where you embrace the best ideas of DEI and maybe even say to yourself, my God, if my competitors aren't doing this, I'm going to have a huge advantage over them. So that was the business case. And then in 2020, it got replaced by the values case, which is just saying essentially DEI is the right thing to do. And then from reading about what's going on, there was a little bit of a shift more to the values case, and now we're coming retrenching to the business case. Do you think one is preferable to the other as a way of uh, advancing DEI? I, I often refer to it with my students as almost like a business case 2.0, um, and I'll, I'll say what I mean by this. The, the business case can get tricky, right? Because mm -hmm. you can make a business case you know, for, 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 for almost anything, right? You know, And you, know, you end up in some slippery slopes. Uh, you know, There was... You know, we've seen many instances, for example, when 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 companies might try to, you know, have like a maybe an externally facing kind of DEI initiative or branding, you know, effort, and uh, it, it backfires, right? And you end up, you know, you've, you've seen this, you know, particularly with the, uh, you know, efforts that you know are ostensibly meant to 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 target, you know, LGBTQIA, you know, populations, and then everyone just gets angry. Like, you know, people in that community are like, this isn't, you know, this is, you know, kind of a cash grab. And then, you know, people who, you know, perhaps are resistance to D resistant to DEI, it's, you know, it's uh, you know, why are you 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 uh you know catering to the pandering to the the this agenda. You know, it's just like it's a it's and then target and then target employees are feeling targeted. It's just like it's a no win situation. And if you follow like the business case to its logical conclusion, depending what the numbers look like, it's like, okay, well then maybe we don't we aren't inclusive to LGBTQIA, you know, community. It's like that's not great. You know, that's not what we want, right? So I the business the business case is 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 slippery, right? That don't like leaning into it. Um the moral case, or you know, the, the values case, the moral case, uh, you know, to your point, Mike, you know, I think there's a moment in 2020 where uh, a segment of our population, a large segment of our population, was, you know, really interested in this so-called racial awakening, racial uh, reckoning, and you know, it, it's you know, that's when lots of training started happening, guest speakers, so forth, so forth. One of the things that I believe happened in that moment, and is you know we're seeing the repercussions of this now, is uh, in, in some ways we began to ask organizations to be in-house DEI experts, have like an in-house DEI almost consulting function um, across the board. Not so much in terms of DEI as being integrated 
into the business strategy, right? Or the, the organizational strategy that's like, hey, you know, we're going to have a talk about, you know, race and the history of racism in this country. And if your organization has an appetite for that, awesome. Awesome. And, and I, I'm going to say this anecdotally, but, you know, I think, you know, others, I've spoken with others, you know, who practice in this space, you know, they, you know, they have, many of them have similar um, takes on this. Mike, what happens is, at the end of the day, and it just use a very, if, you, if, you're, if you work at a company that makes cars, you're going to the company, you're going to work on a day-to-day -day basis on, on the most fundamental level to do your part in helping that entity make cars, not to necessarily, you know, talk about the history of racism in the United States in an abstracted sense, right? Yeah. And, you know, we started seeing in relative short order, you know, you know, conversations about like diversity fatigue. And, you know, I, I, I don't love that phrase. You know, I think that, you know, that there, there are lots of things to, you know, that can be said about them to be talked about. But I, I will say this, anecdotally, you know, I, I've come into to organizations, come into companies. And uh, one of the things that, you know, I emphasize, you know, in, in spaces like this is it's not just white men, for example, who are saying, I'm, I'm feeling fatigue. It's sometimes your black employees, right? And, and there are different reasons sometimes, but you know, it, there are some black employees, some, you know, people with, you know, uh, what I might say, what I call typically in my academic work, minoritized identities, where it's like, yeah, you know, I appreciate we have this DEI initiative. I appreciate that we, we we're caring, but you know what? I, I kind of want to come here to make cars and I'm tired. Right. And, 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 and part of the reason is, you know, sometimes these conversations too, going back to the training, sometimes these trainings aren't done well, frankly, sometimes they are, sometimes they are, Yeah. sometimes they're not right. And it can be very exhausting for, 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 for people of color, for, for example, uh, you know, and there's a whole deep dive, you know, there, but it, but it is to say, Mike, that, uh, you know, when I talk about the business case 2.0, it's a both end. We can both, we can both have potentially once, you know, the scaffolding has been built, you know, the, the level of comfort, for lack of a better way of putting it, it's not even comfort so much, but just the, the facility to have potentially difficult conversations, provided there's a will there. Um, you, can, you can do that, but also do so in a way that is integrated in the context of your, your, your organization's work. The big, the big departure, Mike, uh, you know, that, you know, I, I make, you know, when I talk about and teach, you know, the business case for diversity, if you will, when I say the business case 2.0, the distinction is, loosely speaking, the business case 1.0 is tied to a bottom line or an income statement, a P&L, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm not saying the business case 2.0 necessarily, at least in a direct way, needs that, that that's, not, that's not a necessary criteria, right? What I'm saying, though, is that when you have that conversation or you conceive your DEI strategy, it's not abstracted, right? It's not like, you know, just racism, for example, it's, okay, what's happening here? And what does that mean for us and how we approach our work? Right? Uh, and, you know, indirectly, down the line, I expect it will have an impact on, you know, the P&L. But, uh, you know, that's, that's, it's, again, the commitment to the process, less the proximate outcome. Ahmad Brown is an assistant professor of instruction at Northwestern School of Education and Social Policy. He instructs, he informs, he writes about DEI. One recent article I read in Forbes by him was blaming the DEI industry for failures, misses the point. 
And I want to thank you so much for addressing some of my, and I'm going to say by proxy, my audience's skepticism on this issue. Thank you so much, Professor Brown. Appreciate the time, Mike. Really a pleasure. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>